Good morning and hello again. Apologies for that. We glitch in the system today. Negotiating choppy financial and economic waters. The central bank governor is on the line. Hundreds of passengers refuse to fill out airport COVID forms. Keeping the show on the road. How some restaurants are faring. Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan on the chances of a breakthrough in the glacial Brexit talks. Kate O'Connell on pharmacies struggling to cope. Gardening advice for May with Jim Gavin and Murray Staunton. On the road with the Obegliux, Cormac and Brandon and Lockdown Anthem with country star Lisa McHugh. Email today sor at rte.ie. Text us on 51551 and you can also tweet at today sor. Well, as we know, we're living and will continue to live for some time with two points of crisis as a result of COVID-19. The first being felt, of course, in our public health system. The second is hitting our economy. Gabriel McClough is the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. He joins me now. Good morning to you, uh, Governor. Good morning, Sean. And thank you for joining us. You're speaking to me today from Greece. You travelled there, I gather, uh, just before the lockdown was announced there, and, and you've been stuck there since, working remotely. I have indeed. My, uh, I came for a long weekend to visit my 95-year-old mother, and the day after I got here, she went into hospital. And um, the miracle of technology has enabled me to balance my duties as a son with my duties as a governor. And we've been working, the whole the central bank, in fact, has been working remotely uh, more or less since the time I got here. Yes, and um, Pascal Dunahoo, the finance minister, saying he's been able to make contact with you as required throughout the, contra- uh, the, the, the crisis. But just f- finish up with the family business first. How is your mother faring out? Well, she spent four weeks in hospital with pneumonia. She's uh, back home but still needs 24-hour care. And uh, we're actually in the process of uh, working out what uh, the medium term is going to be about. But uh, her mind's very good. Her mind's very good, but the rest of her body's uh, uh, less good. Well, look, she's... But thank, you for, thank you for asking, I, I'm sure she's getting the best of love and tender care, and we wish you and her the best uh, in, in dealing with what lies ahead. These are not easy times for families, and we are first and foremost members of families. Now, just to ask you about uh, your role in, in the central bank, um, you know, it's, it's obviously central in trying to ease the economic shell shock that has come and will undoubtedly worsen. Uh, what kind of advice have you been asked for, and what kind of advice have you been giving the finance minister? Well, I've had, I've had a number of conversations with him, uh, but it's worth just taking a step back and just uh, reflecting on the central bank's role, which is fundamentally to make sure the financial system uh, in Ireland is working. We're part of the Eurozone, so we're also trying to make sure the financial system across the Euro area is working and maintaining stability. So we've our first actions were really to make sure that there was enough liquidity in the system to keep the um, to keep the banks lending, to keep credit available, uh, and we've been working with the department and talking, uh, and I've been talking to the minister about uh, actions that need to uh, uh, take place, um, in particular across Europe. Um, we've been working closely with them. Yes, and um, we heard earlier this week, for instance, that the budget deficit for this year is headed for €23 billion Euro as a result of the, gov- the measures the government has had to take. And the Minister himself has been warning that, look, this cannot continue uh, indefinitely. He will have to think in terms of tapering off those uh, measures. Now, w- what's your view as to how long these kind of supports uh, can be sustained? Well, they're obviously the, the, the most important thing about such supports is that they're timely and that they're targeted, but they also inevitably have to be temporary. 
Now, how long can they be sustained? Obviously, it depends on how long the virus um, is going to continue and how well the containment measures are working. So it's quite a difficult question to answer. Clearly, uh, the, the, there needs to be a, uh, a plan to um, uh, think about how they're going to be, to, to be withdrawn. Um, from the central bank's perspective, our focus is to make sure that the financial system is uh, robust and uh, ready to support the recovery, or firstly, to support households and firms as they go through the crisis, but then to support the recovery when it comes, making sure there's enough liquidity in the system for firms to uh, continue to uh, function. And when you talk about supporting the financial system, essentially you're talking there about the banks and the other, uh, the other institutions. I'm talking, I'm talking about uh, uh, more than just the banks. I mean, they are obviously a very important part of the system. But I'm talking about the way uh, money circulates in the economy, the amount of money that's in the economy, uh, the, uh, the way credit unions work, the way um, insurance companies work, the whole of the financial system that ultimately makes sure that people sort of can uh, uh, work, uh, can play, and uh, that um, the country functions in the way it wants to function. And one of the measures that you've taken, um, and you might just explain to us how, how this uh, operates and how it benefits the system, that you've released uh, the, uh, the counter-cyclical capital buffer, as it's called, from 1% to 0%. Now, what, what's the effect of that? Well, we um, 10 years ago, the financial system basically fell over uh, across the world. And we've spent the last uh, decade or so, again, uh, the world has spent uh, a lot of time trying to make sure that the system is resilient and won't fall, fall over when uh, there's a shock like um, the one we're just experiencing. One of the requirements we had of banks is that they actually set aside uh, some extra capital, um, which they could use if there was a shock like the one we've got. And we, uh, we made the call on the, um, in the middle of March uh, that actually they could now use this. So they've got extra capital, which they can use uh, to offset losses or uh, to sustain hits on their balance sheet as a result of um, the, uh, the downturn. And is that uh, one of the key measures which enables them to provide uh, some respite for, for mortgage holders, for instance, that they won't have to pay their mortgages for perhaps three months rolling on to six? It's, it's one of the key measures. Um, there's been a number of other similar measures taken, including at European level, um, to uh, relax the rules and enable the banks to um, be able to use some of their capital um, in uh, to support, again, to support households and firms, absolutely. Now, one of the things we see um, suggested in some reports is that uh, people who've got mortgage approval are at risk of having that approval withdrawn by financial institutions because of uncertainty in the property market. What's your, what's your insight into that? I've, I've read some of those reports. I mean, I think what, um, what's important to remember is that it is in everyone's interests that banks make prudent lending decisions. I mean, part of the problem that we had 10 years ago was that uh, banks made reckless decisions and um, uh, and so did borrowers. And we've put in measures to try and make sure that doesn't happen. So I think what's I think what's happening, uh, and I've been reading some of the the, um, the stories, um, probably same as you, 
is that the banks are looking carefully at um, the creditworthiness of a borrower and making judgments accordingly. Uh, and I think it's, as I said, I think it's in the interests of uh, the uh, the borrower, it's in the interests of the bank, but it's also in the interests of all of us that lending and borrowing is done prudently. Indeed, but might there be a risk that some people who have signed contracts uh, to buy properties, buy the, the homes that they've wanted and need, uh, might find themselves unable to, to complete the sales? Well, there's potentially a risk of that. Um, I think the important thing is that borrowers... Uh, keep an open and uh, early channel of communication with their lenders uh, and the lenders keep uh, in close contact with uh, the borrower to make sure that everyone understands exactly the position they're in. Indeed, but how how could you allow a situation whereby somebody would, uh, in good faith, sign a contract to buy a house and then discover they couldn't close because the bank had pulled back from from, from the the, the, um, mortgage arrangement that had been agreed? Well, if they've pulled back because the individual borrower's circumstances um, were such that cast doubt over uh, the sustainability of the borrowing, I think it's in the interests of the borrower um, that uh, the bank actually does pause and take stock. Um, it's, it's hard to get into the sort of uh, individual circumstances of a particular case, but I mean, as a matter of generality, uh, the banks are obliged to conform to uh, the, uh, co- the con- to, to look after their customers and treat them fairly, um, but they're also required to act prudently. Uh, and, as I, and as I said, it's in the interest of everybody that happens. Yes, but if somebody loses a deposit of several uh, several thousand pounds, maybe tens of thousands, sorry, of euro, I should say, um, as a result of their mortgage approval being withdrawn, how, how fair is that? Well, it depends on the, on the particular circumstances, uh, Sean, and um, clearly we'd expect it to, to be done in um, whatever's done to be done in a fair way, in a professional way that looks uh, that, that has the considerations of the customer. Um, at the forefront, whatever the bank decides to do. Right. You're obviously a member of the Governing Council of the European Central Bank, um, Gabriel. And I, I'm wondering, I, I presume you've, you've, you've followed what the Taoiseach was saying in the Dáil and on previous occasions uh, where he talked about um, how Ireland, alongside several Eurozone countries like Italy, Spain and Portugal and France indeed, have called for the creation of corona bonds, a, a form of joint risk and debt issuance among countries using the euro. But clearly the, the debt mutualisation isn't something, as he acknowledged, that all member states can accept. So where do you see this ending up? Um, I mean, he talks about the Eurozone's bailout mechanism, the ESM, uh, needing to be modernised to provide cheap money to member states. Well, I think it is um, uh, imperative that the um, European Union has a recovery plan to support um, the emergence of all of its member countries, member states, out of uh, out of this crisis. Um, how that uh, recovery is actually funded, whether it's through corona bonds, as they called, or through some other mechanism, really is um, an issue that I don't have a particular interest in, other than I think we do need action. It needs to be ambitious. It needs to be coordinated. Um, and uh, I have to say that personally, I'm a bit disappointed with some of the reactions that we've seen, but uh, I'm still hopeful that uh, the European Union will work together 
to uh, make sure that, that all of its citizens um, emerge from this uh, crisis. In that context, uh, how concerned are you about that uh, constitutional ruling by Germany's highest court earlier this week, uh, effectively raising the, prosp- the, the prospect or the possibility that there could be a break put on the, uh, the Bundesbank participating in steps uh, by the ECB in, in regard to buy- buying uh, bonds, the kind of, you know, we'll do whatever it takes that we heard from the previous uh, head of the European Central Bank? Well, I wrote uh, a blog yesterday, Sean, uh, that ended uh, with the statement that um, we are determined to respond uh, forcefully to the challenges and to do whatever it takes to deliver uh, our mandate. I think it's an interesting judgment, and lawyers will no doubt spend a lot of time uh, trawling through it. It's quite a long judgment. Um, I think uh, fundamentally... It doesn't actually get in the way of the ECB uh, carrying on with its incredibly important job, especially at this time in the crisis. But it's, is, is it not um, suggesting that, for instance, the, the German parliament pay much greater or closer attention to how the Bundesbank is participating in the business of the ECB? Well, it, um, I won't uh, pretend that I've done a deep analysis of the judgment. It does... Um, uh, the, the, the judgment is actually is directed at the German government and the German parliament. Um, it does run counter to what the European Court of Justice uh, indicated, or it, it looks as if it runs counter to what the European Court of Justice indicated uh, just over a year ago. Um, and that's one of the interesting legal uh, issues that's now emerged. Uh, that, I mean, the ECB itself acts very transparently um, and uh, very openly as to what it's doing and why it's doing it. Um, we don't, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that all of my uh, governing council colleagues um, are uh, very happy to uh, explain our decisions and we, uh, we've always done that. Anyway, so I, I, I think the immediate, uh, the immediate uh, impact of this uh, case um, on our actions and all the efforts that we're making to make sure that uh, there is adequate liquidity throughout the euro area will uh, well there won't be an impact we're going to carry on uh, doing uh, what we have been doing but I think there's aspects to that judgment which no doubt lawyers will be as I said uh, trawling through and debating for some time to come now, we saw that uh, economic forecast uh, for the Eurozone yesterday from the European Commission suggesting that uh, there could be, I think, a, a loss of growth of close to 8%, seven and three quarters in the Eurozone, uh, with some recovery next year. Um, your predecessor here, who's now, of course, uh, the um, uh, chief economist with the European Central Bank, Philip Lane, um, was, was warning last week that, in fact, in, in a worst case scenario of an extraordinary and severe shock as a result of the pandemic, there could actually be a 12% decline in Eurozone gross domestic product this year and it could be twenty the end of 2023 before things would return to their current levels. Where do you see, th- see things working out? Well, when we published our own uh, projections at the beginning of April, we were talking about falls of uh, 8% um, of GDP in Ireland. Um, I was uh, in the discussions last week um, in, uh, at the ECB I was about to say in Frankfurt, but of course, all of us uh, are doing this virtually. But uh, I was involved in those discussions. And um, in my view, 
the staff well the staff put forward three scenarios and the most severe was the one you've just mentioned the 12 percent uh fall and actually i am i think that's the most realistic one at the moment um and certainly it's the one that i believe we should be using as a planning uh, as a basis for planning now a lot of this depends there's a very big proportion of this that is unknowable, which is what is the path of the virus, Uh, not just domestically, not just across Europe, but across the world. Um, But uh, at the moment, it's clear we have a very, very severe shock. Um, And uh, in my view, uh, what that 12% fall in GDP is probably the more uh, realistic one. That's the one we ought to be planning for. Now, how compatible with planning for that is the idea that there would be no increase in taxes, for instance? Well, at the end of the day, um, what we uh, what governments decide to do in terms of uh, financing their spending is up to governments. And they can finance their spending by raising taxes, uh, by borrowing, uh, or actually by adjusting their spending. Um, and... Uh, those those are absolutely political choices, and in the end, in the end, you you know you always have to make trade offs as to what you're going to invest in, and what you're not going to invest in. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure I can say much more than that, Sean. Yes, and just looking at uh, the report from my colleague Ingrid Miley, uh, our industry and employment correspondent, yesterday, they're almost. 600,000 people now, 598,000 receiving the €350 a week COVID-19 pandemic unemployment payment. Um, That's an extraordinary figure for something that was launched only on the 16th of March. On top of then there are 205,000 recipients of normal or non-COVID job seekers benefit and then another 800,000 former employees now totally dependent um, on the state for their financial uh, survival, I should say, if you add those two figures together. And then you've got another 427,000 workers having a partial payment by the temporary wage subsidy scheme. That's, you know, you put them all together and you've got 1.23 million people, all private sector workers now fully or partially reliant on the state for their income. It is. The numbers are extraordinary and they're replicated um, one way or another uh, across most of the industrialised world. I mean, it is quite extraordinary. And it... uh, and it also does mean, I mean, what it reflects is that um, the depth of the crisis, but also the timeliness of action on the part of governments. Um, but all of this is, uh, or a lot of this, is going to have to be temporary. And the big question um, is how quickly can we get out of this and what's the path to get out of this? Um, and, you know, I don't want to depress you uh, and your listeners, Sean, um, uh, much more. But uh, some of the big challenges that we've had, um, that we had before the uh, COVID-19 arrived, uh, haven't gone away. The UK's departure from uh, the EU um, is still, well, the UK has actually left the EU, but the transition period ends at the end of this year. That's still there. And a big, big challenge for Ireland. Um, The changes of climate change, what I've called the big economic transitions, um, climate change, technology, uh, building economic resilience across the country, I spoke about this before Christmas, uh, remains um, a really important uh, challenge, but as well as an opportunity for us. Um, and that's still there. 
Indeed it is. Uh, Some of the questions that listeners would like me to ask you, has the Governor any plans to reduce the percentage level of capital necessary for credit unions to function? Uh, We don't have uh, any uh, immediate plans on that score. We we made some changes earlier in the year um, to uh, enable credit unions... um, uh, to give them a bit more flexibility. But, you know, we're always trying to balance um, in the same way as we are with banks, um, the uh, the interests of the, of the system as a whole and the interests of uh, credit unions uh, themselves and their members. Um, and was, we're always trying to strike that particular balance. We've got no plans. Yeah. Uh, and another question from a listener. This is the last one. Um, the... Um uh, the suggestion that the bank should be instructed to stop putting up charges on ordinary account holders. Fees are increasing and now they want to put negative interest on deposits. It's not long ago since they got bailed out. Now they're hammering us people for more charges. Well, the uh, the banks need to, uh, and other financial service providers, do need to run uh, uh, commercially viable operations. Um, and interest rates uh, throughout the EU are low and, in fact, in some cases are negative. So I think what you're seeing from the banks is a reflection of, um, of their commercial decisions. On the other hand, they do need to make sure that they're acting fairly, that they're informing their, consu- their uh, customers in a timely way, um, and that they do have their customers' interests ultimately um, at the forefront of their minds. Governor Gabriel McClough, Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the line.